HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I do my show on the Heritage Radio Network because I think it's important to talk about the impact of technology on our lives. I do my show to reach home cooks and help them do better. I love getting together with people in the industry. I like hosting my show because, to me, it's the stories about people and their relationship to food that help make the food more interesting and more delicious. Our hosts do their shows as a labor of love, but we still need your financial support in order to keep the lights on and keep the tape rolling. Please become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes.
welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz, uh, sitting on Kingsland Road in London. Uh, I'm inside Jadori pre-lunch service Correct. Uh, with Natalie Lee Joe and Brett Redman uh, from Jadori. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you. Thanks Thank for having you. us. Um, so, how did you start? Where did you two come from? Uh, <laughs> it's a long question. Yeah. Uh, we, I mean, we started talking about the restaurant itself uh, a few years ago. Um, Natalie's always had a dream, I guess, of opening her own place. Yeah. Uh, and we've also been uh, friends for longer than I care to remember. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we were just, I guess, at the start of it, it was a more casual conversation. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone really took it seriously that it was ever going to happen. Was it, was it like over beers? Was it over yeah, wine? Was it in pa- was it like like kind of like four AM at parties? Not four AM, <laughs> but it's always after a, a couple of drinks. So yeah, the yeah. courage comes up a little bit. So um. I think I think Brett had just been travelling from memory, and I think you'd come back. You'd just come back and said, "Nah, I've got a really good idea for you. Let's do yakitori in London." Where were you travelling to? I think you were it, wasn't, it wasn't. It wasn't Asia. It wasn't sure. Asia. I think you were coming back from Australia or yeah. New York. Or there was something. just like a really great picture in a like in an in-flight magazine of a, a yakitori bar. I think it was in Osaka, and it was like six people sitting around this really rustic, crazy wooden bar that looked quite chaotic, and people were you know the, the picture was of like half-eaten chicken and half-drunk beers and. A, I don't know, they looked hot and sweaty. Yeah. They looked like fun at the same time. You're like, I want that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was just like, that's, you know, we've talked about lots of different restaurant ideas and that scene and that vision was kind of what what started making sense, really. In the background was the guy cooking on the charcoal grill and I was like, oh, this is actually something that I do already, but in a different kind of format, I guess. Uh, I mean, in your background is really good. Um, Elliot and... Uh, how was it kind of taking some of those, like, I mean, this is a, people people can't see, it's a, it's a little bit more of a simpler setup. How is it taking from, like, a larger kitchen, that thing, and, like, what do you take from there and bring it bring to here? Yeah, well, I mean, the, 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 the two key things were the style of cooking. So the Richmond and Elliot's, you know, the, all the menus are built around, you know, the kitchen's having a wood-fired grill. Mm. Um, wood-fired grills can be 100,000 pounds, multi-mechanical, custom-made objects, or it can be a tin box, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the park, basically. So, um, I, I was trying to think outside of the fact that within the space, we wouldn't be able to have these gigantic grills, but when I started looking into Yakutori, well, you, you see they're quite, quite small, quite concise and condensed little units. Um, and then, you know, you start thinking a little bit more about it, and I said, what, what is Yakutori stand for? It's just about how well can you cook a piece of chicken. And then, you know, most of the philosophy behind the other restaurants is how well can you can you cook a pork chop or a steak or a nice piece of fish. We don't over-embellish any of the dishes. The, the, the plating's quite simple. There's no complicated sauces or platings as well. So all that thought process actually is exactly the same as yakitori. It's like you need to buy a really great quality product. You need to cook it really well. So the, the complexity of it is actually the attention to detail and the, and the simplicity of that. How many times would you say that you'd have to cook like the same piece of chicken? No. No, 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 no. How many times uh, 
So it's like um, Spanish tortilla, right? Like yeah, you can yeah. make it really, like first time you can kind of get there, yeah. but it's going to take like 300 times to really kind of get the essence. So. The, first, the first time we practiced it properly on the grill, we burnt all the chicken and didn't actually get to eat any of it. And <laughs> <So>. uh, also, <laughs> Brett forgot to do the absolute basics of cooking yakitori, he forgot to soak the skewers as well. Ah, yeah, so I think right. all of that All burnt. the skewers, all the chicken, <laughs> and the skewers. all the fat rendered, all the <laughs> coal blew up, all the chicken caught on fire, the skewers caught on fire, and then all the skewers kind of melted inside the grill. And yeah, like all every single piece of chicken that we bought got burnt in about 25 minutes so we packed up and went home <laughs> uh, okay yeah. like alright uh, good day uh, yeah. well, was, that like, was that like a long night just kind of staring into the void I, I, like, I went home we... I don't think we could look at each other at that yeah. point so <laughs> I was like I'm sorry that just didn't go to plan do you think that's where like the 15 years of friendship kind of helped navigate the, so. the, the yeah, yeah. situation definitely you just but I, I just kept saying look trust me I'll, I'll figure this out you know it might take a couple of more times but yeah. we'll get there this is this is not the difficult most difficult thing I've ever done so yeah we'll get there in the end trust me so like what what was like what kind of like iteration um, do you feel that like you finally like it kind of began to see like of like you know, like okay this is how we want to do it I mean you're essentially cooking the same limited number of items yeah. day after day after day I think like when for me, it was the first time we cooked the chicken wing correctly. Mm. It was like it was that was the moment. It was like the skin was crispy, the seasoning was correct. It was smoky, but the meat was really soft and falling apart off the bone. It did take about 35 minutes to do it, and I was obviously thinking that's never gonna. People aren't gonna wait 35 minutes for a chicken wing, but I need to work on that part of the yeah. of it. Um, yeah, and then when you I don't know when when you nail something so so simple as that, but you can also appreciate it mm. and you get excited by it, then you start thinking, oh, I could, I could do this more than once. Yeah. Um, and then your, your background is advertising. Yeah, So, um, I mean, how did you make the, the jump or, you know, what kind of skills kind of transferred over from advertising? I mean, the space is beautiful for people who cannot see it. Um, <laughs> the design is really, it's great. Like, the tables are awesome. The, the stools are, are great, like... Did that come from advertising, attention detail, or kind of like, what, what did you bring with you? Yeah, I guess so. Like, yeah, the design, I guess I was really on top of the branding. Um, that definitely all helps. And I, even, I think, a big part of us getting here, like, as Brett said, we've been, we've been talking about it for years, but actually finding the right site, getting in front of the people that actually control the sites was a big part of it. So even... It was like little things I didn't realise would actually help me. So even me being able to put a presentation together about what the concept of Jidori mm. is and actually selling the concept, I didn't realise actually that was a big skill that I managed to bring over from working in advertising. But yeah, definitely the design and branding, its menus, all that sort of stuff is exactly what I think. Because I, like, I did strategy in advertising, but I also did creative as well. So I guess that... Yeah, I guess that definitely naturally came over with um, opening a restaurant. And is it, I mean, you know, this is, you know, American-based show, but, you know, we've, we've heard from some of our interviews, like, opening your kind of first spot is really difficult here, or even just getting, yeah. finding the landlord is really difficult. Not to say that it's not hard in New York, but, like, there's windows and signs and things, that, uh, signs and windows. Is it a lot more difficult here to get someone to take a chance, or, or what have you found in your experience? Yeah, it, it's so competitive, you know, like, the... There's so many small independent operators in the last two or three years that have blown up into 
multiple site small independent operators so they're like people are I guess growing quite aggressively as well um, and there's a I mean the main issue is that there's a massive kind of planning law in place which kind of stops or limits the amount of restaurant sites that can be created so mm-hmm. there's pretty much a block now on new restaurant sites so what, what, is there any what's the reasoning behind uh, that? especially on high streets they want to protect the, the high street you know, yeah. so they don't want every um, I don't know suburban or kind of regional high street to turn into bars clubs mm-hmm. nightclubs restaurants they want you know they want that daytime trade as well so therefore they have to keep retail shops and um, they, you know, that's, that's like an A1 use for those restaurants or an A3 use so they're basically banned or limited the amount of new A3 sites that can go out there which means you know as the supply goes up and the demand dwindles yeah. and the, the price of getting those sites is just going through the roof yeah. it's crazy interesting um, and so, like, you know, once you kind of opened this place, uh, I mean, what was the final convincing that you said that, like, the piece you put together that were like, all right, this, like, this is going to make sense um, for, for this area? Uh, for the, so for the landlords, I think it was okay. Actually, it was probably Brett's cooking that kind of won them over. Did you have to cook for them? Oh. Yeah, we did. It was you a, did. yeah. That's the, that's <laughs> yeah. the right there. They're like, oh, no, I think we're going to need one yeah. more chicken wing. Leftovers? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we sat them down. <laughs> <and took leftovers. laughs> I think we even sat them down in the middle of lunch service, wasn't it? Or was it early in the morning? It was early. We took them down to Brett's other restaurant, cooked them the whole menu that we were proposing at that point yeah. to kind of, I guess, let them know that we're legitimate and then and taking them to Brett's other restaurant knowing that he runs a restaurant so we know what we're doing. Yeah. I think that like, if, if they see you've got a history, it doesn't matter if it's a different concept then obviously the landlord's going to feel more comfortable that you're going to pay the rent your restaurant's going to be there for a long time you know the last thing they want is to have to find another operator in another two years or one year if you go broke you know or you lose your site so right yeah. Um, it was, yeah it was also councils the local residents all, all yeah all those parties had to did you have to come for all of them too yeah yeah oh, really? <laughs> no, no. did you really street party I think no, they, just, I, like, just like tin trays and yeah. just like chicken feed and giblets. And I think council did even suggest to us to cook for the residents, but we on we just didn't know how that was going to be possible. Yeah. It was, um, but yeah, they they did suggest like why don't you invite all the residents who were against another restaurant in the area? Um, why don't you invite them down and cook for them and let them and let them meet you? But instead, we just went to a couple of like resident meetings instead. But yeah, we had to face all of that open. So in, in the opening, um, how much research has gone into it, like trips to Japan or to other like yakitori izakayas and yeah. you know, like, how did you, you know, put that together? I mean, how did you make the really tough decision to <laughs> eat as much of yakitori yeah, as possible? That was the fun part yeah. of the process. <laughs> yeah, definitely uh, trips to Japan, like quite a few trips to Japan to kind of like visit all the places. Like doing everything from you know, all the, all the places like, um, you know, near the stations, near Shibuya, um, Shinjuku Station, Kisali, all the way up to the Michelin star yakitori restaurants in Japan. A few trips to New York even, because New York, they seem to kind of do yakitori really well. Mm-hmm. And it's also something that's got, it's a bit more popular, I think, than it is in London. So. What are some of the places you went to in New York? Do you remember? Tori. Tori Shin. Tori Shin. The, that's the Michelin star mm-hmm. one, but yeah. it's a bit, you know, yeah. fancy. Um, and then, like, kind of like across the board from like just the, the, the subway station to the Michelin star, what were some of like the 
defining characteristics or connectivity you found uh, across them? Or, or did you find drinking them? really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, when like any 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 research trip, any inspiration was always based was based around not replicating. You know, that we were never looking to do a traditional mm. yakitori restaurant in London. Uh, that felt a bit cheap. You know, mm-hmm. like we, we we never would have been able to put in the work or the time to really, you know, master that craft or such. So I think, you know, that's a that's a ten years worth of work, like building your way up from preparing the chicken to lighting the fire to actually getting on the grill. You have to serve your apprenticeship with your master. Mm-hmm. So it felt a bit disrespectful as well, you know, mm-hmm. to just say, oh, let's let's just do a traditional yakitori restaurant. So we were always looking for for a little bit of inspiration, like you said, in little pockets of things, never looking to copy, but always mm. looking to be inspired. But then almost reimagine what if, if a yakitori restaurant was to be invented or start in London in 2016, what would it look like? What would it feel like? How would it be different from a traditional izakaya? You know, what, and what do people want? Because in the end, it's still a business as well, you know? so we need to make sure that it's fit. In, in with East London too. So. Had you had to adjust anything, or what did you have to adjust to fit into East London? That you know, we definitely had to diversify the menu. You yeah. know, if you're in a yakitori restaurant in Tokyo, it's here's your chicken on a stick. Yeah. That's it, you know. And worship the chicken, respect the chicken, eat the different bits of chicken one skewer at a time, yeah. and appreciate the textures and tastes and how it, you know, can can change from beak to tail, basically. We couldn't do that, you know, because that's, I guess if we only had those 10 bar seats and we had a yakitori master on the bar, you could, you could get away with it, but that was never going to be our business model, you know, so we, we had to bring in like some more dishes, so the menu, I guess, is split between small plate kind of snacky things and the yakitori. Um, the small plates have a lot more vegetables, a lot more seafood as well, um, and I don't know, I guess that's been the main the main the main menu thing that's different from yeah. here to there. Um, it's always in the back of your mind to, you know, one day open a little hole in the wall, purely focused yakitori restaurant, but whether or not that's a realistic dream. That's, a, yeah. that's the dream down the, down the road. Uh, yeah, well, I think once you, you know, once you get the rest of it sorted and you want to have a little hobby shop, that might be something you do. But. Yeah. Um, okay, we're going to take a quick musical break, and then we'll be back, Rob, we're going to talk about sourcing and women in restaurants. Um, we'll be right back on Snacky Tunes. I am flesh, I am business, oh touch me, I am sick. Strong, I am lustful in this abyss. I'm neither formed, I am not full. I'm a great divide, all is amiss. So kiss me, baby. Tell me, Judas, are you my priest? (laughs) 
my mouth to impurities Open my throat, let in the bees So they can buzz and busy me Obviously, sourcing becomes really important when you're serving, you know, uh, a limited specialized menu. But the thing that kind of grabbed me first was your grill, um, which is the backbone of everything, yeah. I think. Yeah. Maybe, if not as important as the chicken. So, um, I'm kind of curious um, how you found it and then how you went through the process of selecting selecting it and, and the brand uh, yeah. that you went with. Um, I don't know, I just actually, I was like traveling around Tokyo and I stumbled upon them actually. Like I was going along Kapibashi, which is the area where all restaurants go and get all their equipment. Um, and I was kind of like calling Brett saying, oh, the grills are about this much. Like actually, before I got to Kamasa, where we actually bought our grill from, they're incredibly cheap yakitori grills mm. um, and I was calling Brett I was ex- describing them sending photos and he was saying look that just sounds like something we can make here don't worry about it and then just like by the end of the day I was like at the end of Kapabashi and then I met these guys Kamaasa and I was just like firstly what stood out was I guess their grills were so much more expensive than everything else I'd seen mm. so far they must be good yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's obviously the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not, not that they're taking advantage of a Torah. It's definitely... Yeah. 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 You go too while well, you're there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I kind of just started speaking to them, and they were just like really warm, really lovely. Spoke to them for ages. I was in that store. And um, we've actually since contacted them to kind of like potentially buy a second one, and I think everyone in that store knows me now. Okay. Um, but yeah, it was just um, getting you, a better understanding. Were you the first person from London to go and to show up there? Do you feel? Or? Maybe I know. I know a couple of restaurants in Paris okay. have their grills, um, and then very much in Tokyo. I'm assuming in the States as well, but. There wasn't anyone in London that they spoke to me about because mm. I was kind of asked, I was interested yeah. who actually is using their grills. Um, and so I kind of just spoke to them a bit more about why their grills were kind of that much more expensive. Um, they explained the materials that they used. Um, and then again, I called Brett and explained it all to him. And he was like, yeah, this sounds like the one. This sounds... What were, do, you, do you remember some of the defining characteristics? Yeah, it was, it was more about how they described the, the, I guess, the bricks or the concrete that mm. kind of like forms the, the shell of the grill. So mm. the, the way that they were talking about the, the airflow as well and the little, like it's got these three little doors on it that create air that you can block off and open up to get the fire burning hotter or mm. cooler. And then the, the main thing is like with the grill, because it's so skinny, you have to be able to not only 
burn the charcoal for the heat, but the grill has to be able to hold on to the heat mm. to get that refractory heat going to cook the chicken through. So you don't have thirty-five minutes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it's it, you know once the charcoal's lit, the the bricks that are on either side of the charcoal they they need to get really hot, and they need to stay hot because when you're cooking the chicken, you actually our chicken in particular is really fatty chicken between the skin and the meat. There's loads of pockets of fat. So as that fat cooks and renders out, if it hits the charcoal, it will flare up. And when the grills are so small, there's nowhere for the flare to go except for straight onto the chicken. So what you're doing is actually getting the grill really hot, but kind of indirectly cooking the, the chicken over the hot parts of the grill, but without the charcoal underneath mm-hmm. it. Because we, in in Japan, for example, they use pincho tang, you know, which is a completely different type of charcoal, reacts differently to the charcoal we have here, uh, you know, gets really, really, really hot, but actually doesn't really smoke either, you know, mm-hmm. like it's, it's white hot as opposed to like kind of red hot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they, they can use this charcoal to get their grill super hot and then move the charcoal away and cook it. Mm-hmm. Our charcoal, because of what it, what it is, doesn't get as hot as that, so we had to kind of figure out a way to get the grill as hot as possible but also not cook the chicken over the charcoal too much so there wasn't too many flare-ups. So yeah, it was about that, the, the, the bricks and the amount of refractory heat that they can hold and keep the grill really, really hot so that the radiant heat keeps going up into the chicken. That, that was the key. And the way that they described it was like... It, like it hit all the chef notes. Yeah, It wasn't exactly, like some yeah. like lines or no, whatever. No, like, no, you're no. like, oh yeah, th- those are people who that's, know what they're yeah. saying. Yeah. That's, think... that's right, that you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, okay, yes. Pay the man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was actually um, the thing that absolutely did it for me to go back the next day and buy it was I actually went to this place called Yoshicho, which is like a Michelin style place in Ginza, that night. And I was sat right at the bar, I was sat directly where they were cooking all the yakitori. And it was the Kamaasa grill I'd yeah. been looking at that day. So I started speaking to them about it, and they said, yeah, if you, if you want to take it seriously, this is the grill you need to get. Just, like, staring, just clocking the grill. I was one of those really annoying customers yeah. directly in front of the chefs, yeah. asking them questions about everything, um, kind of watching everything that they were doing. Yeah, I was definitely one of those customers that night. Uh, that was a very, very beneficial night, though. It was. Yeah. It was. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Just taking notes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Video uh, recording. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the chickens. Yeah. Um, it, you know, one of the, I think, kind of ongoing myths is that, you know, produce and poultry and everything in, in London or, or England is above a certain level, um, which as, you know, the, is not really true to a certain extent anymore, especially with the rise of the restaurants in the last yeah. decade. Um, having said that, you know, with now with so many suppliers, like, how did you land on your chickens? And, and please call them out. <laughs> yeah, um, so, yeah, the, they, the, they're a little company called Foss Meadows. Um, they're actually based in Bermondsey, which is the next suburb over from Borough Market, which is where Elliot's is based. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've, we always used them at Elliot's, but only for their hearts. So we used to have this uh, dish on the menu at Elliot's for a long time, which was basically a yakitori chicken heart, mm-hmm. but done a little bit differently. Um, it's always been one of our signature dishes. People love it, come back for it over and over and over again. Um, yeah, and then, you know, we, we did try like about 10 or 12 other suppliers, other different producers. Some of them were great for sure, but you, you just couldn't get away from the, I don't know, they just tasted so much better. 
Um, it's proper, 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 slow, grow and free range, pasture fed chicken. There's, you know, they don't fatten them up or anything. There's different, like in the UK, the, the free range is quite a vague terminology. So I mean, same in the States. Yeah, too, you can yeah. buy free range chickens that you are can buy organic too. It's kind of like, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got to ask the questions, you know, like mm-hmm. how many hours a day are these chickens allowed to be free range? Because I think it's even as little as an hour a day you can let them out, stick them back in the pen, free yeah. range chicken. So you yeah. can put them in the supermarkets and charge a premium for them. Um, or you can have a free range chicken, which is out all day, all night, eating grass and clover and the you know the natural feed, I guess, of the of the land or the farm that they're on. They get fed very little extra feed, obviously during the winter and stuff when there's not much else to eat. They have to um, you know add into the food supply. Um, and the the big thing is they're they're dry plucked, you know. So when you Obviously, after the chicken is, is slaughtered, you've got to figure out how to get all the feathers off them. So most manufacturers will put the chicken through a process of almost a bleaching process where the, the feathers just kind of chemically burned off the chicken. Um, it, it makes the chicken skin quite wet as well because they're dipped in a, in a solution. But the, the best way to do it is to dry pluck them. So it's a, more of a hand-done process where each all the feathers are pulled out individually. What you end up with is a, a really dry skin. So, like if you're making pork crackling, you know, if you have a really dry pork skin and it goes in the oven, it's going to crackle up and become a lot more crispier and tastier. If there's any moisture in it, obviously you've got to blast the moisture out of the skin first before it even starts to crisp up. So, um, that that was the main thing. You know, the the, the quality of the skin and how it crisped up and was so tasty. Um, definitely was the first thing that brought us over and then the fat content you see you look at pictures of jidori chickens in in japan and you watch them as they're cooking them there's they're almost like wild game birds you know there's quite these big strips of fat between the skin and the and the meat that i would normally only associate with pheasants or partridges like in in the the midst of the season when they've had a lot of food and they're getting really fatty and plump and these birds had almost like a extra layer of fat in between the skin and the meat and that's that's the taste you know as that melts and renders down and the skin crisps up and it bastes the meat at the same time those things combined together were yeah were what made us choose it i mean no more questions on that, that, that that's like a perfect uh answer um so one of the things that has been kind of on the rise in uh, the states that i wanted to ask you about was women in restaurants and kind of women restaurateurs um there was the uh, you know infamous time cover where it was like all male chefs and yeah. um, in response there's been um, uh, Cherry Bomb Magazine who are past guests on this and also the Jubilee Fest but it'd be great to kind of hear you know what the current you know temperatures of women restaurants in London and kind of how that is being uh, talked about or what the current state of affairs are. Yeah, um, so no, I haven't really, I think since we've opened Obviously, um, me getting out of Jidori is quite hard. So I actually haven't had the time to kind of uh, meet many other uh, women restaurateurs. But I'd say probably, um, you know, at Jidori, unfortunately, uh, I've definitely found the roles that we all play are still fairly traditional, actually. Like front of house, unfortunately, is still all female. And then all the chefs are male kitchen porters are all male Um, and I would love to shake that up a bit more but to be honest 
I don't think we've had a single female chef at CV come through our door. And we've only had, I'd say, ever a couple of male kind of CVs for front of house positions. So we would love to switch that around, but it hasn't really happened yet. Um, and then just in terms of, you know, I do know other women uh, working in hospitality, but I don't know, I think there definitely needs to be kind of um, more room for, I guess, women to kind of grow in this space. It's, it's good, like, it's definitely, like, actually any other, other um, owners that I've met who are women, you definitely have this bond immediately, mm. and it's really great community, actually, but I think there definitely still needs to be a few more in here. And do you feel that it's just like it's, it is just so traditional like the, the history is just so long that people don't imagine it that way and the same would go to you for the chef the I, chef role. I think the, the difference is that like there's women in hospitality obviously and then there's yeah. women who are restaurateurs and owners mm. and then the third category there's women who are chefs so the, the women who are chefs thing is definitely seems to be like gaining momentum and there's a lot more like progressive interest in restaurateurs to promote women into business as well so I know even the guys that run um, uh, what are they called, like Chris Corbin and, and King uh, they have started a program where they're actively offering day you know day work to promote women who have had children and have had families to get them back into work as well because you know there's such a shortage of chefs full stop you know like we Across all the restaurants now, you never expect to find a chef who's ready to step in. You know, you're always thinking, does he have the potential to become a great chef? And then you're always training them for a month to try and bring them up. Um, so, you know, yeah, definitely people are, like, actively trying to promote, you know, women chefs back into work as well. Because often you get started, you might spend five, six, seven years in the industry, and then... Mm-hmm perhaps family life steps in and takes you away from it but then what you do when you want to get back into work but you've got children as well so um, but yeah I mean women who are restaurateurs like uh, Tonkotsu is like doing obviously amazingly well um, the Oaxaca Marito. yeah Marito yeah uh, what's Angela Hartner's place is called all the Cafe Morales mm-hmm. yeah. so yeah I think uh, definitely and, and 100% it should continue as well mm. Uh, so, uh, one last question before we go. Um, what is the most underrated part of the chicken that you can't convince people to eat on the regular? Parsons Yeah, <laughs> we can't convince them to eat the chicken bomb, but yeah. we try. Yeah. Um, uh, how do you prepare it? Uh, <laughs> take away all the nasty bits and leave the good bit behind. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely... The one, it's the thing on the menu that everyone asks, what is that? What is a parson's nose? And so we always have to explain it is the chicken's bum. And then you'll just see the reactions immediately. People will just like absolutely turn their nose at it and just like stop you right there and then. But it's it's absolutely delicious. Like I know growing up I'm one of six kids and we all used to fight over that parson's nose yeah, and the it's roast the chicken. Tasty bit off the off the roast <clears throat> chicken, you know. Um, okay. it's, it's very fatty. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. It's of just skin. a little like kind yeah, of little tail on the back. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's, it's a, I'm sure you've probably eaten it. Uh, people have eaten it a ton of times when yeah. it's just like a roast yeah. chicken and yeah. never stopped to think exactly. what it was. Yeah. But when you explain it, okay. Yeah. Well, I know that you're gonna have extras here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We come back. yeah. Um, well, I want to thank you for making time um, before before thank service. Um, 
where can people find you? Where can they follow you on social media? All yeah. the, the advertisers, please, <laughs> please tell all. Um, so we're based at uh, 89 Kingsland High Street, which is in East London, Dalston. Uh, so we are on the high street, so it's quite a busy spot. Um, yeah, and we can be followed on all social media, so Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Jidori UK. Uh, great. Well, thanks for uh, having me. Um, we're going to take a quick musical break, and we'll be back with the latter part of Snacky Tunes. When she was 45, they gave her 40 years, 40 years to die. Fifty thousand Chinese American restaurants in the U.S. That's more than three times the number of McDonald's. How did Chinese American food become so popular? And what's the story behind their unique menu of dishes like egg rolls and General's chicken? 
Brooklyn's Museum of Food and Drink is going to explain it all with our next exhibition, Chow, the Making of Chinese American Cuisine, featuring tastings, beautiful artifacts, and live demos of a fortune cookie machine. Visit chow.mofad.org to learn more, get advanced tickets, and help us make this exhibition a reality. Again, that's the Museum of Food and Drink at C-H-O-W, chow.mofad.org. Welcome back. We have Elliot and the Ghost live in studio. You boys want to go around the room and introduce yourselves? Sure. Um, Connor Jones. Connor Jones plays bass. Uh, William Thompson, play guitar and sing. Brett Giroux, I, I play lead guitar. Dan Edwards, drums. So when a young, handsome man leaves Austin, <laughs> the Big Apple, 2013, this is going. what ideas do you take with you from Austin uh, in coming to put together a project in New York? Uh... Honestly, it's just playing music my whole life back in Austin and um, doing that that whole thing and playing as much as I did and visiting New York a whole bunch on tour. I definitely fell in love with the city, so I knew if there was any chance that I could ever get away, I knew where to go. So when there was a moment uh, that my old group was kind of folding, I got my ass up here and then met these guys. And um, it's just been two years now since we've been playing and it's just growing every day so yeah I mean just being uh, just being in love with music I guess is just straight up how I'm here and what are some of the bigger differences you've seen between New York and Austin and some could be good and some could be bad but what are some of the different things you see about the music scenes it's funny because people are like dude why did you leave Austin and I mean, I would ask that question yeah. sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I understand. I mean, um, I think when you're born and raised a place, there's always that urgency, like, get me the hell out of here. But at the same time, and it was it was a tough place to leave, and there's a lot of reasons why. But uh, the main thing is being assigned band in Austin, which is a rare thing, but I was lucky enough to be one of those people. And even then, seeing how the industry operates back home, compared to bigger cities like New York and California, like L.A. and stuff like that. And even overseas, we had a lot of success overseas. So uh, I knew I wanted something bigger and better. And not to diminish anything that I'd worked on in the past, but uh, I wanted to make my life music. And if I could somehow like sustain a career, even, playing music, like, I'm all for that. So uh, maybe it was the drive just to... Uh, be familiar with the industry and like we started a band up here we have a manager takes good care of us and like that's a shout him out uh, his name's Ryan Kaufman uh, hey Ryan yeah he uh, yeah for a reason music that's his company and I mean it's just one of those things where maybe it was an industry thing I hate to be as nerdy as that but that's how it is I think it's a legit comment and feedback about it so just just to go back to that what were being assigned band but what were still some of the shortcomings of being in Austin even having that position it's this weird thing where you have a million venues, but you don't have any industry. And that's why Austin is so fun, but it's also why you have one Gary Clark Jr. for maybe 200 that are... I mean, I love Gary Clark. I was on the same label as him. So, But it's just, there's a million people out there, and I play in a, the hole in the wall in front of two people, and they're incredible, but they're not ever going to go anywhere. And that's, that is depressing, and I saw that happening with myself, where... I'm doing a stadium in Japan. I get back to Austin. I play the Mohawk in front of 10 people. I just doesn't... I was like, this is just too weird. I had a DJ friend who said you can either be a hometown hero 
or a worldwide hero. That's Gary Clark, and somehow he some, somehow had both. Yeah, yeah. but but nary the two shall meet, yeah. or very very rarely. Right. And, and for the rest of you, um, where where are you from, and how long have you been in New York? I came here from Philadelphia about like seven years ago. Philly guy too. Right on. Where do you get your cheesesteaks? <laughs> I'm a Pat's guy. Oh okay. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. Yourself? Uh-oh. Tony Luke's. <laughs> That's a great place. Yeah. To no, it's fine. Yeah. Just uh, you know, the cheese whiz is like my. Oh yeah, yeah. I think like it's of a certain type. My my parents always like forbade the cheese whiz because <laughs> sure. they were like it's unnatural. Yeah. So I think it kind of took us out of that, but very legit response for sure. Uh, and you, when did you come up here? It was about uh, seven years ago. Okay. So uh, I came for work, but naturally, um, you know, music is where my heart is. And Will and I have been playing for for a while. Yeah. Uh, you know. It evolved into what it is today, which is like our band Ellie and the Ghost, right? Uh, but you know, naturally, I think music is the reason why. Like, I continue to stay here, of course. Um, yeah, and, and never look back, really. I mean, I think if you're not here working on the arts continuously, then there's probably a lot of easier ways to live your life than being in New York City. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I agree. In fact, like you know, when you talk to people, right? Like, who's in New York? I feel like, in a lot of ways, like if if they're if they're not doing this sort of like passion project on the side from working right if, if you will then I feel like they don't have the sort of like same pulse that a lot of other people do um, I had neighbors that as best as I could tell they just stayed at home and watched TV mm. after working on the weekends and I could not fathom what jobs they had and how much they were paying to stay home and watch TV in, in New York City I kind of assumed they could probably just do that anywhere Yeah, uh, and it wasn't even that great in apartments and I just could never wrap my head around being like, why are you still here if you're not out and exploring the city and being creative or that's so just... funny you say that man I, I think about that all the time it's like I don't know because uh, sorry to interrupt but it's that whole like creative drive that I know a lot of our friends like minded people come up here for so it's like if you're gonna struggle like I don't know if it's struggle worth... for something yeah <laughs> I guess they weren't struggling I mean, yeah, I mean it, it looks pretty co- it looked pretty cozy actually <laughs> uh, and for the the rest of you uh, yeah, I'm from New York. Uh, grew up on Long Island. Yeah, we're both um, from Long Island. Yeah. Can you hear me now? No, no, no. Uh, good friends are from Long Island and, and uh, represent no strong. Yeah. What cool. up? Yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah, so I just like played in a bunch of bands out there. Um, and then eventually started playing in the city more often. Uh, just decided to move here and you know, pursue music here. What are some of the better known Long Island venues? Or as a kid coming up, where would you play? Uh, it's changed a lot over the years, um, but when, like, growing up, I would go to the downtown in Farmingdale and see, like, punk and hardcore shows there all the time. Is there anything else in Long Island besides punk and hardcore? Uh, not really. <laughs> uh, let's hear a song. Awesome. What are you guys going to play first? Uh, we're going to play our brand new single called Turn Off Your Radar. Amazing. It just came out.
always run its course in a course. Oh, out till I'm shy, you got to get now all the shapes, shapes, and not none of it. Satisfied, yeah, it's wearing off, wearing off, wearing off, right? Ain't got a promise, hasn't hollered. But you know it's wrong, so turn on the radar. Crack open your heart, will you rock and roll a scar? And if it don't feel right, Coming to New York, uh, you kind of start to put the pieces together. I know that your first EP was recorded in a living room. Yeah. How did that come about? Um, honestly, I guess that was kind of a hybrid situation where, uh, I mean, how do you, you want to sit? You want to talk about that, Brett? Yeah. It really comes down to like budgeting, right? <laughs> um, like, naturally, I think like when you're a musician here, uh, you're unsigned. Uh, a lot of the time, right? And and you sort of like need to scrounge around to get a, a proper recording. Uh, we were th- we were lucky enough to actually have engineer friends, and I think that's sort of like the basis of a, of how we do a lot of our art, right? We collaborate with friends, um, and we were able to sort of get the our, our footing that way, and we recorded our tracks like in, in ba- a, ba- a basement and basements. We did it in. Uh, like a girlfriend's living room. Right. We did it in our rehearsal studio, and yeah. then, but we were smart enough, having had musical experience in the past, to like know that like if you want to actually make a decent recording, drums and you know the rhythm aspect does need to be like carefully placed. So, you know, we'll scrounge up money. I sold like childhood toys, like that I found out became like uh, relics. So like we would go into the studio and uh, to record drums and stuff like that. We yeah. Were, it's what what toys did you sell? <laughs> Dragon Ball Z action figures. <laughs> so, Was it hard to part with that Goku? It's so hard. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did something. So I like I leased my place for like a month and stayed with my girlfriend just in order to get some money for yeah. for the recording. Yeah. yeah. I mean, beg, borrow, steal, right? Uh, yeah, I mean anything, and it's it's funny that EP is no longer even available. But it was uh, it was I mean what happened a, to it? I think we ended up signing with uh, industry, and we wanted this, you know, like. Connor joined the band uh, last. Uh, Connor wasn't on the recording, and there was maybe this like rebirth once 
the band kind of included my guy right here and then there was just this kind of like thing with the when we were signing with management and all that stuff where maybe we should start fresh so that's what we're doing right now we're doing we're doing a series of singles right now yeah what is this the single series yeah this is kind of something we created yeah so uh i think it's i i don't know i love how it's been uh i don't know if there was really like a a plan necessarily in place we kind of went with it but it ended up being this cool thing because we realized with the ep that you know you're gonna promote this this collection of like five songs or whatnot but there's always gonna be like a single relation and all that so we're like what if we just did a single and what if for each song we like collaborate with an artist that we love for the for the art and then on top of that what if we collaborate with a cinematographer or director that we really love for the video. So we had this like idea that each song was going to be like a special project. And we wanted to do four songs. Each song has a, uh, a, a photograph uh, of a member of the band taken by photographers that we love in the city. More of what Brett was saying, collaboration with like... Who were some of the photographers? Uh, we had this one girl that uh, she's... Brazilian uh, artist named Jessica Espindola. Yeah. We also had uh, Jackie Harshman, and we had who's an Alex Serp. Uh, another she yeah, yeah, she, she did, did one. And, and then uh, um, Erica, Friedlander. Erica yeah. Friedlander. Yeah. So all really really cool photographers. All female. Yeah. And oh, then uh, the video. <laughs> yeah. And then the video people. Uh, big shout out to like Craig Callison, who's been like a big. Uh, he's been an important part of our band's life for yep, sure. Yep. And um, we just finished our last video with the Turn Off Your Radar. We just played that. That's our last single just came out. So the project is almost near completion. The video is going to be out soon. And we worked with uh, Anton William Blake on that video. And really excited about that. And uh, Matt and Marriott did the Peach video. A lot of fun. Yeah. And for this, each of them, are they all tied together, or do you start afresh with... We start fresh. It's amazing. Yeah. And do, you, and do you give them any type of guidance outside of the music, or is it collaborative, or how do you work together with these outside uh, artists? Well, first of all, I don't think that they would like collaborate with us if they didn't like the song, even. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's more of... Um, seeing their previous work, what they had worked on, and wanting to really seek them out and see if they'd be interested in working with us. And we've been fortunate enough to like create those bonds. Um, at the same time, it's just like a grassroots thing where it's like, you know, none of these guys are P.T. Anderson dudes like yet, but they, I, I would think that each person we've collaborated with is gonna reach that status. They're really talented people. And, um, but you know, it's like, what helps us helps them. So it's all about that game. And how have you seen the response from this versus the EP you put out or your past musical projects? How has the reception been to the single series? It's just bigger and better each, each single. Like, I think people were, like, kind of confused, like, so the EP is gone, but you have a, one song out, and then after the second song, they're like, oh, I see what's going on. Mm-hmm. And by the third song, that was, like, a total understanding, and now this last one came out. So it's just, it's picked up. Like in a great way. So from confusion to understanding to acceptance to anticipation. Yeah, Rihanna totally inspired me. She's just like, I don't need to put out a record. I can just do singles. And I was like, that's like the old style, the way that they used to re- release music in the fifties. Properly. Yeah, it's like a single, and that's easy to promote. And you can attach your, you can attach so much content into one song. So 
for the way that we are in a band right now, it's like we don't have a 50k budget to go into a studio just right the second. So instead, it just makes sense to a song at a time, and you have so much you can do with one track as far as content. So we figured that out and are just kind of going with it. That's great. Can we hear another song? For sure. What are you guys going to play for us? It's going to play another single in our series called Bad Enough. Great. Live on Snacky Tunes. Tragedy. 
So most bands don't wipe their own musical histories and get rid of their earlier EPs, and I feel like it's even harder now in modern times. So now that you do have a chance to reset since all four of you are together, what are some of the 2.0 versions that you're going to be working on or would like to try to work towards? You want some? That's a hard question. Um, I would say, like, um, honestly, it's like, in a way, it is a good thing. Uh, we've learned a lot from all of us having been in previous musical groups and then being in this band and kind of learning from all the mistakes we'll make that you just, I mean, how do you even say that? Like, you know what I think is, is actually. So, like, every band, in a sense, like, has an, some sort of, like, evolution, right? And and um, and the way that we sort of went through it was transformative, not just because new members of the band, but also, like, the way we write music, right? So it's now it's the epitome of, of really collaboration within the band. So everyone, uh, even in our contracts, is everything is even. Um, so, like, all songwriting is, is 25%, right? Uh, and then also, like... You know, Will and I were playing a lot of music together, and we were sort of like looking for the sound, right? We called Brooklyn Rock and Roll, which we love. Uh, and I think that after we sort of like found found our stride with like the whole rock and roll concept, we looked at each other and, and we were just like, "Yeah, this is this is it. Like we're a rock and roll band, right?" Yeah. What was the other option? Well, he Not he, he was experimenting <laughs> with like folk music, mm. um, and we at one point there was like seven people in the band. We had a violinist, we had uh, someone playing keys, uh, and we you know we took a step back and and we really like thought to ourselves like is this what we want to do? Uh, and th- when we all met, we we decided the consensus was really like you know we're going to pursue rock and roll music, and, and that's that's where we are now. Right. That's what I brought to the table. <laughs> a, a heavy hand of Brooklyn rock and roll. Yeah, that's what they needed. <laughs> so what's coming up for the rest of the fall into early next year? Um, hopefully releasing the, the last music video. And then I think we have uh, an idea to do a couple releases with cover songs. And then just keeping writing, keeping recording. And then um, hopefully going in the studio and doing our first real album. Everyone has a different process of selecting a good cover song. Right. How do you guys select yours? I think we all have, like, like kind of what Brett was saying. Like, we all kind of came from, like, a rock and roll background. So, and we like, we like a lot of, like, older music, too. So I think it's pretty safe to say that if I come in being like, let's play a Ramon's song, let's play an Iggy Pop song, everybody's going to be on board. At the same time, we totally cover Sia and Robin <laughs> and people like that. But um, if we were going to release anything, I think it'd be more of like our like kind of punk and rock influences. And are you more deep cut or more well-known? More deep cut, I think. But at the same time, like, I mean, for example, I think we're going to maybe aim to release um, Search and Destroy by... Uh, the Stooges and at, at the same time Oh Oh I Love Her So by the Ramones would be mm-hmm. great mm-hmm. but that's like you know that's not that's not like a heavily circulated single for them or anything like that right I mean it has to speak to your own ethos but also not be something that you're just another one in the ever expanding canyon right. of, of covers <laughs> yeah yeah, and we're not gonna like highly produce those songs like I think it's better if we just like we team up with like um, some person that can 
kind of just like understand that we just want to have it just all live and and we actually recorded one already that's just all live and the energy's in it you know that's amazing yeah we want to make sure that we have time for one more song so where can people find you watch your videos check out oh and you have a show coming up at Sunnyvale yeah uh, where are you playing uh, yeah it's going to be Sunnyvale in November November 4th mm-hmm. I believe mm-hmm. uh, we're opening I don't know I think we're headlining that yeah, show headlining. with uh, Walker yeah. Lukens um, he's a cool like like kind of southern rock guy from Texas actually but um yeah I mean we were always and I guess like the other answer to the question we're gonna like play a lot more shows too hopefully awesome yeah. and you're gonna get married yeah well he's exactly. getting married oh and you oh, and me. Yeah. oh amazing yeah. congratulations <laughs> to both of you thank you um, well we thank everyone for listening uh, if you enjoyed this show please go back and check out our archives everything is podcasted if you like this one I believe the episode with Karl Marx from Boston would also be quite excellent and if you feel so inclined please leave us a review we would greatly appreciate it thanks for tuning in we'll be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes what is the name of the song you're going to take us out with this one's called Peach Peach oh and big shout out to Peter Gaston for putting us together yes thanks, Peter Gaston thanks. Woo! Woo! he's the man alright uh, Ellie and the Ghost with Peach Yes, man.
talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.
We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>